0: children are invited to head towards the white picket fence over there, kindergarten through third grade, and uh, have a time with Children's Church as we begin our message. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 36, Mark chapter 13, 24 to 36. I want to say hello to those who are watching us online, and um, as we make some changes this coming week and move indoors... We will still be streaming. So if you're watching us online, don't feel like you're going to be cut off. We know you're there. We appreciate you. We pray for you. And uh, we will continue to stream from inside. Also to those who are in their cars, I guess this will be the end of the drive-in. Honk your horns one last time to say amen. (laughs) Amen. I hope you feel comfortable, if you can, to join us inside as we, we seek to distance and to be responsible with that. And we'll have the balcony opened and there's an elevator up there if, if you wanna be able to spread out uh, extra far. Uh, but we invite you to be with us indoors as we worship the Lord together. We do wanna be together as one body um, in Christ. Well, every four years, we kind of hear some of the same things. One of the things I uh, I hear every four years is uh, that the world's coming to an end. And another thing I hear every four years is that we're facing the most important election in history. And four years then must be just the right amount of time to uh, for us to forget that we said those things before. Um, being a, a, a student of, of American history I was sort of maybe my maybe my mind was wandering a little bit this past week. I don't know. I I started to think back when might have been the last time we had an election in which people said this wasn't going to be the most important election in modern history. And as I thought about it, I, 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 I came up with one. And it was 100 years ago this year, the year 1920. I wonder how many of you would get the question right if I had an exam right now and asked you, who ran for president in the year 1920? And most of you, almost all of you, would probably get it wrong because it was pretty much a very unimportant election. If there was ever the most unimportant election in history, that might have been it. Um, The year 1920 um, was between James Cox, the Democrat, and Warren Harding, the Republican. But a few facts about these two. Both were from Ohio. I think it was the one time in history when both presidential candidates were Ohioans. Both were also um, in the newspaper business. That was how they had gotten their start and their primary um, business was in newspapers. Um, Both ran on a platform of returning to normalcy they, that, that America had just gotten out of World War I, and they both were saying, you know what, we just want life to return to normal again. And neither of them really campaigned too much. In fact, Warren Harding became known for his, his front porch campaign. He would come out on his front porch and talk to reporters every now and then, but he didn't travel, he didn't campaign, he didn't do the stuff that politicians often do. Well, Warren Harding won the election But he didn't even live to finish his first term. He suffered a heart attack before his first term ended. And um, so it's little wonder that every time I drive to Columbus and I pass through Marion as I'm heading south on 23, I have to think to myself, now which president was it that lived in Marion, Ohio? Because I always forget it was Warren Harding. But I'm glad that the most important person in the world doesn't sit behind a desk at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I'm glad that the most important person in the world sits in heaven at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And as we say the Apostles' Creed, it tells us that that Jesus Christ has a risen and he has ascended unto heaven, where he sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And that is what we look to today, this coming of Jesus to judge the living and the dead. He will come again. And he wants his disciples to know this. He wants his disciples to have some idea of what is going to happen But he doesn't leave a clear roadmap for us, does he? He doesn't list out the details that we can all track with. There's no dates. There's no maps. There's no specific details. Instead, he leaves a mystery to be pondered. And as we approach this mystery, I want us to beware, not to make the mistake that so many have made and continue to make. And that that mistake is to assume that this is more than just a mystery, to assume that it's some kind of a puzzle, to assume that there are these pieces that have to be worked out and fitted together, to assume that there are clues sprinkled throughout Scripture or throughout history and that there's numbers and codes and something just waiting for the next most enterprising uh, author to create the next bestseller to attract all kinds of attention. There have been a lot of bestsellers, and every one of them have been wrong. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Jesus is giving us a mystery, not a puzzle. There aren't hidden messages, no secret codes, no math or numerology required. But what Jesus is clear about here is his intent that we be alert, that we be on our guard, and that we watch and pray for his coming. So let's look at verses 24 to 27 first of Mark chapter 13. Jesus says there, beginning in verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Gracious Father, as we study your word today, I I pray that we will understand this as we should. Lord, help us not to draw out of this more than we should, but Lord, help us to see what you need us to see and to know what you need us to know and to obey and to walk by faith as we wait for your coming. Amen. So in these first three verses we just looked at, four verses, there are echoes from the past, echoes from the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus speaks here of sun being darkened, of the moon not giving its light, of stars falling from the sky, of, of powers being shaken. And this is an echo of the way we read the prophets in the Old Testament. And many of them are describing this event called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. I'm going to just share with you one of them. Isaiah chapter 13, um, verses 9 through 11, would sound familiar after what Jesus just said. There Isaiah says, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. A description there of this event called the Day of the Lord, And if you read other prophets in the Old Testament, you encounter this many times over. The day of the Lord is repeated. And it's these prophets that we very rarely look at or talk about or think about. The the little ones at the end of the Old Testament. Books like Joel, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Amos. Many of them talk about this idea of the day of the Lord. And what is that going to be? What is it gonna look like? Well, basically, it's a day of judgment. It's a day when God is going to deal with wickedness. It's a day when he's gonna establish justice. It's gonna be a day of reckoning. It's gonna be a day that, that Jesus connects here in Mark 13 with the destruction of Jerusalem, which we talked about last Sunday. But there's more. There's more than just that. There's something else to come that Jesus wants us pay attention to. So that's the first echo from the Old Testament, this echo of the day of the Lord in verses 24 and 25. And then in verses 26 and 27, we get a second Old Testament echo. This idea of the Son of Man coming in the clouds. This echo comes to us from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, it says, Daniel's writing, and if you if you remember the story of Daniel, he's in Babylon, and the Israelites are in exile, and he's given visions of what is to come. He says here in chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this idea of the Son of Man coming with the clouds was spoken of by Daniel hundreds of years before, and now Jesus Echoes that he reflects that in his speech to the sermon to the disciples here on the Mount of Olives in Mark chapter thirteen. Notice, interesting as you look at what Daniel said, he was talking about the Son of Man coming on the clouds into glory, into heaven. Notice the direction there; he's traveling not from heaven to earth, but from earth to heaven. And so the Son of Man coming in the clouds um, is is a coming into, into heaven. Some say this was Jesus after the ascension, coming into the presence of God the Father Almighty. But is that the end? Is that all that happens? Well, Jesus seems to indicate that there's something else going on here, because he indicates that it will come, that he will come again, that there's something that will be reversed that the Son of Man will come this way from glory to earth. Confused? It's okay. (laughs) There's a mystery here. And we're not necessarily going to figure it all out. But let's keep looking at what Jesus says, verses 28 to 31 now. Because now he's speaking directly to his disciples and he says some interesting things. He says... Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus says in verse 29 to his disciples that they will see these things take place. And then he says in verse 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What is Jesus talking about? Did they already happen then? Did the disciples see the day of the Lord? Did the disciples see the coming of the Son of Man? Did we somehow miss it? Well, these questions perplex us. But remember, Jesus is giving us a mystery, not a puzzle. It's a mystery to be pondered, not a puzzle to be all figured out. And I think the best we can say is that these things did happen because Jesus said they would. But they also will happen because Jesus says that they will. And so much of this, when we come to the prophet's comes to us in layers. It comes to us in 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 different levels of meaning that can be parallel and simultaneous. I was just talking to uh, Perez's this morning. They got back from a vacation out west. You saw the mountains. You saw uh, the Rockies and the Grand Tetons. And anytime you've ever traveled west, especially if you're in a car. And you're moving towards the mountains. You you know the experience. Maybe you've been on I-70, crossing Kansas into Colorado, and you see the Front Range of the Rockies start to uh, appear on the horizon. And you notice those snow-capped peaks from way far away, as long as the weather is clear. And 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 you see the distant mountains before you see the foothills. You see what's farther away before you see what's closer up, don't you? And that's kind of a paradox, isn't it? Or, or, or like a telescope in a way. When you take a telescope and you, you you, stretch it all out, there's parts of it that are here and parts of it that are here, but when you fold it all up, they all come together. Prophet, prophecies in the Bible work like this. They kind of fold in on each other. And, and, and so there are things described that happen that happened in the past, that will happen in the future. And we have to realize there are there are layers to it. And as we get into it, we see it more clearly. I've heard it described as the end came, the end is coming, and the end will come. So when the temple was destroyed, that was an echo of the day of the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven. That was an echo of the coming of the Son of Man. But the return of Christ is still to come. There will be final judgment. There will be justice in a final day of the Lord. It will yet be. It's a mystery. But it's a wonderful mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. and It's a mystery that calls me deeper into faith. So what should we make of this? What are we to do with it now? What is the application for our lives so that we can take to heart what Jesus wants us to receive here? He tells us in verses 32 through 36. He says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, So be on your guard. Keep awake, for you don't know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. (laughs) Stay awake. Do you get the idea of what Jesus wants of us here? I think it's pretty clear. Be on your guard. Stay awake. Watch and pray. Some of the early manuscripts included that as well. Watch and pray. This is not a puzzle, this is very clear. Jesus knows we get distracted. Jesus knows we get weary. Jesus knows that um, it's it's hard sometimes to to keep the faith alive and stoked, strong in our hearts, but he wants us to stay awake, to be aware, to watch, to be on our guard, and to pray. I know sometimes we can feel like we might be few in number, that we might be weak in stature, that maybe we're short on our resources or we're burdened with all kinds of problems. But remember, the Lord is with us and he is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he is coming again and he will be our vindicator. We cannot lose that faith. We cannot lose that focus. There is a temptation Always to look down, to look down at all that's wrong in our world. There's a temptation always to to look out at the things that other people seem to have or that other people seem to be doing that we don't. There's a temptation to look inward and to, and to just think about what we wish were different about us in our own hearts or lives. But Jesus calls us not to look down, out, in, but to look up, Amen. to keep our eyes up, to stay awake, to watch, to be on our guard, and to pray. And when we look up, and when we keep our eyes of faith alert and alive, we will see that throne. We will see that throne. And the book of Hebrews tells us that when we look up and when we see that throne, it's not a throne of judgment, it's not a throne of condemnation, but it is a throne of grace. A throne of grace. Hebrews four sixteen says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When we look up, when we look to the throne, what we see is a throne of grace. And I believe that's what we must be watching for as we watch for Christ's coming. Remember, we are still in that season of grace. Sometimes theologians call it the age of grace. And Jesus says to his disciples, look at the fig tree, measure its seasons. Understand the time in which you live. And I tell you, we must measure the season and know this is the season of God's grace. The day of the Lord came and the day of the Lord will come again. But this, this is the age marked by God's mercy and grace. God has been gracious towards us and he calls us to be gracious to others. Grace for those who struggle. Grace for those who see things differently than us. Grace for those who are afraid. And we can sense the gracelessness right now settling in, about us like a dark cloud on our land. We all see it. We all know it, this gracelessness. We are hungry for news of grace. We are hungry for what Jesus Christ has brought for us. What is the answer to our current crisis? The answer is what is unique to the Christian faith. And that is this message of grace. So what are we to do as we watch and as we wait? Look for grace in the everyday. Look for grace in the people around you. It is there. I assure you, I have seen it. As I talk to people, people that maybe are different than me, people who might have different backgrounds than me, I'm always blessed when I discover you know what they're not the way I'm led to believe they are by what the news might say or the media might say the message of grace is not getting out the way it should but it is a reality that we live in and we need to see it we need to see it around us we need to see it in the people around us I've had many encouraging conversations with with people in our community, and so often it revolves around the same subjects, all the things that we think are just so wrong with the world right now, and all of a sudden I I realize this person that I'm talking to doesn't represent the problem. They represent a person just like me. And that's what we need. We need to get personal again. We need to connect. We're desperate for that sense of community. People in our schools, people in our hospitals, people in our communities and and businesses around us, people that we talk to every day. Are people struggling with the same basic questions and problems and what we need is grace? So be the evidence of grace that others need to see. Let's live this. Let's make this the pattern of our lives. Let's be the example of patience, of forgiveness, of understanding. This is what we as a church offer the world. We offer grace. And I believe that's what our world so desperately needs right now. We need to pray, Lord, help me show the grace to others that you have shown to me. And then remember that that grace comes from God. Now is the time to draw near to that throne of grace, to help point others to that throne of grace, but we also understand because of what Jesus said here, that grace does not go on forever. When Jesus comes again in glory, it will mean the window of grace is closed. It, it will be a good day because it means justice will also come. And God will set all that is wrong to right. We look forward to that day, but it will no longer be a day of grace. It will be a day of justice. And so we must be on our guard. We must watch for it. And in the time that we have, we must spread this message of God's mercy and God's forgiveness and the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy in our lives. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for the message we have. Lord, that it is not just a message of judgment and destruction, but right now we have the opportunity to find mercy and grace in you. And Lord, may that be the message we live. And may we look for that and seek that in those around us and not be brought down, but to look up. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.